The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from godaddy.com. Get yours now. Welcome to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, up first as our guest today, a returning guest and friend of the program. Welcome to Congressman Dusty Johnson, the lone representative from South Dakota. Uh, he is, serves on the ch- as chairman of the Commodity Markets, Digital Assets, and Agriculture Committee. Uh, or Sorry, I am all over the place reading this today. He serves on the Agriculture Committee and is chairman of the Commodity Markets, Digital Assets, and Rural Development Subcommittee and as a member of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. He's also been doing a lot of work as part of the Select Committee on China. Dusty, thank you so much for joining us, and welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me again. I'm glad I didn't flunk the first appearance. (laughs) We are, too. I've been horrible for ratings. Um, All right, so China has made a secret agreement with Cuba, uh, which is about 100 miles south of Florida, for those of you bad on geography, that they're going to do electronic eavesdropping facility in Cuba. Um, Is this alarming or should it be? It is alarming. Uh, It's alarming for two reasons. Number one, I mean, they're going to have the capability to do all kinds of electronic surveillance across the southeastern United States from there. That's going to give them access to stuff that they don't otherwise have. They can't get the same stuff from space. They could get it from balloons, but obviously balloons are pretty easy to, uh, to bring down. So this is going to give them new capabilities, particularly uh, to scoop up information, uh, communications from military sites in the southeastern United States. But the second reason it's concerning is that it shows uh, additional uh, provocation by uh, Xi Jinping. They just keep pushing the envelope. They keep pushing us. They want us to know that they're going to be the bosses of the next 100 years and I mean, it's a problem. I mean, we have a rules-based international system that was largely erected by the United States after World War II and our allies, and China hates it. They just hate it. They, they don't think those rules of fair play make any sense. They want to knock down that system and build a new international system uh, with their values at the core of it. And all of these provocations are just part of a longer-term strategy. And I would just say this you know, by way of closure. They have a strategy. I'm not sure our country does. I think uh, we just we don't have a thoughtful and deliberate plan on how to make sure that the next century uh, continues to be part of you know an American century. Speaking of that, so now we're talking about Cuba. Is the United States with really no strategy neglecting Central and South America, which China seems to be focusing on? Yes. Yeah. I, we. So many Americans, I mean, we're in a little bit of an isolationist time. If people want to, you know, America first. And, and I, listen, we, we, of course, when we make policies, we should look first to how is it going to impact America? How is it going to strengthen American prosperity and security? But America first can't mean America only. Some people will sometimes say, well, why, why would we care about Guyana? Why would we care about, you know, Cotter? Why would we care about Ukraine? But when we recede from international leadership and and create a vacuum, China is all too willing to step up and fill that void. They love it. They love it when Americans put our head in the sand. 
they, uh, what I would call the southern globe, they really are trying to be the dominant force there. China is the, the largest uh, trading partner with every single South American country. That's cra- it used to be America, and, and now it's China. In public opinion surveys, increasingly, uh, citizens of African nations are saying that it is China that is the leader of the world and not the United States. Well, and that, that is a matter of world opinion, not U.S. opinion, too. I think we have to take that into consideration. You can't be the leader of the world just because the people in your country say so. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. <laughs> and I just think a, a, a world where people think China's in charge is a more dangerous world for freedom. And the thing that I've loved about America through the last 247 years is that to a greater degree than any other country in the history of the world, we have been on the side of the right guys, of the good guys, and we've uh, fought for uh, values. And, you know, we haven't been perfect, but we've gotten it right way more often than anybody else has. And that is not China's track record. Well, and it's interesting. China has sort of become the world's loan shark. It's loaning money to these third world countries for ports, infrastructure. When they can't pay it back, they kneecap them. They kneecap them. Exactly. Yep. And we trademarked that term. <laughs> and so we do that. And so it, that brings me to we talked about I feel the United States for decades has ignored Central and South America, right? I mean, we have every abundant resource in the world in our hemisphere. We seem to ignore it. And now you have the Washington Post came out this morning with the Saudi Crown Prince privately threatened a major economic pain on the U.S. amid a showdown over oil cuts leaked intelligence show. Um, and now you have Saudi Arabia inviting China over. Um, we just dropped the ball here. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't think I have felt this insecure about our ability in the world right now since I have the late 70s. And I, I would tell you this sort of sense of populism that's growing on both sides of the aisle is contributing to that. Uh, free trade is out of vogue. I mean, it used to be that that was a key Republican value, that a willing buyer, a willing seller, that kind of free trade without undue government intervention, that made both sides more prosperous. Again, it's voluntary. I mean, they're only going to enter into it if, they may, if it makes their individual lives or country stronger, Correct. at least in theory. I mean, Colombia is the fifth largest market for American corn. Is that because Colombia's a top five nation in population or wealth? No. Is because Colombians have some unique uh, taste for corn? No. It's because we have a free trade agreement with Colombia. And so the invisible hand just kind of wants this American product to flow toward that country. And th- this administration, the Biden administration, has no trade policy. Zero. There have been no prog- there's been no progress on any trade deal in the last two and a half years. And the world, when I have people come to my office uh, from other countries, they, uh, they want to do business with America. They want to buy our beef, our dairy, our corn. Uh, they want to buy our manufactured goods. And we are not making it very easy for them. And you're right, that kind of uh, stepping back of American leadership is absolutely uh, injuring American competitiveness. Well, they, they want to buy our products because our products are well-made. They're safer than food coming from China. Yeah, all of those things. We have this really good capitalist system, but at the head of it is a government that has no idea what it's doing and keeps making radical course changes between administrations. That has to be throwing our all of our allies for a loop. It, it is. 
they, I mean, they still realize that, you know, when we lead, we're the best leader in the world. There's nobody else can bring to the table what America does. They get a little nervous when they feel like America is too inward focused. Uh, Tony Blair, former prime minister of the United Kingdom, told me a few months ago that uh, uh, America's political division is a global security threat. That when our Republicans and our Democrats are bickering, the rest of the world gets concerned. Uh, and when we're getting along, when America's united, the whole world just breathes a sigh of relief. Oh, thank goodness, mom and dad, uh, they're the cops on the beat. There's going to be more security. There's going to be more free trade. There's going to be more prosperity across the globe. Uh, when we drop the ball, uh, everybody feels it. How much is what China is doing right now is really reminiscent of an economic version, if you will, of the empire building of the 18th and 19th and early 20th century. How do they? How do Chinese people view what they're trying to do and their territorial ambitions? Have you gotten any information on that from your briefings? I mean, do they have real popular support in their country for this sort of muscular foreign diplomacy? We heard from two survivors of the Tiananmen Square massacre last week. It was the anniversary of, of the massacre. And, and what was most interesting to me about that briefing wasn't just replaying the terrible uh, events of that day, but about how little awareness there is among the Chinese people about the actions of their government. Uh, the, the Great Chinese Firewall is for real. It is very difficult for uh, everyday Chinese people to gain understanding of what their government is doing. And this is the most sophisticated surveillance state that has ever been constructed uh, with human knowledge. And, and I, don't, I, I think Americans don't understand how bad it is. I mean, there are regions in China where you can only get toilet paper in a public restroom by scanning your ID. They want to know where you are. They want to know what you're doing. They want to know how much toilet paper you're using. This is an almost breathtakingly deep invasion of people's privacy. So people are not comfortable speaking out. Uh, there, are, there is not a free media. Uh, and I, uh, not only do they not understand what their government is doing today, there is almost no historical memory of the fact that this has been a repressive and oppressive regime for decades. Uh, it is a major problem. The Chinese people are not, uh, are not uh, an adversary to our nation. It is just Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party. Well, and, and that brings up a good point. You talk about the digital wall that they've created. I mean, one of the ways that we really advanced towards ending the Cold War and ending the antagonism with the Soviet Union was with Voice of America, with other communications where they started seeing on TV – the lies their government was telling because, you know, their government says everyone in America, it's, it's poor, it's racked by race riots all the time. They, it's a terrible place to live. And then I, I talked to one um, ex-Soviet who, who said, hey, they showed us that, but then they're saying these are the ghettos and everyone has cars. And none of us had cars. <laughs> <laughs> I, how do we break through the digital wall? I mean, is there a way to for us to start trying to to direct more information to these folks? Uh, yes, and I think things like uh, low-Earth, uh, low-orbit satellites can, can play a 
role in, in giving people access to Internet that doesn't go through the great Chinese firewall. It, it can help, you know, one, one and a half billion Chinese people understand that their regime is evil and is working to make them subservient every single day. But that requires an investment, like putting satellites up in space and, and giving people access to, you know, the worldwide web. This is not something that happens for free. And I think in our political system right now, if somebody said, well, we want, you know, X hundreds of millions or, you know, a few billion dollars to be able to deploy these satellites that, like the Voice of America, to cut through these tyrannical regimes, uh, what do you all think? I mean, I think a lot of Americans would say, well, why do I care what's going on in Hong Kong? Why do I care what's going on? I mean, I just it seems like it doesn't affect my life. And, well, the and pro- I, so I think we've got some information sharing we got to do. Well, the, the, we're almost out of time here for this first segment, but the, I think the, my final comment here real quick is there's just so much going on in the world. You're saying, how much can I handle mentally? I think that's a big part of it now. We're with Congressman Dusty Johnson, South Dakota. This is Breaking Battlegrounds. Find us at breakingbattlegrounds.vote or your favorite podcast. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds. I'm your host, Chuck Warren and Sam Stone. We are honored to have friend of the show, Congressman Dusty Johnson, Republican from South Dakota, um, a, a true leader in Congress. And uh, folks, are you concerned about your retirement? You probably should be. Things aren't getting cheaper. Social Security going to have to be altered some, whether you like it or not in the future. Um, that's why Sam and I are recommending to you why refi. Um, they are a great opportunity to help students pull out of their private loan college debts, and you can get up to a 10.25% return. That's right, 10.25%. So learn more about how to make your investment dollar go further, better than the stock market, actually. And that's why we, we suggest you call Y-REFI at 888-Y-R-E-F-Y-24. Again, call 888-Y-R-E-F-Y-24, and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. Congressman, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, folks, he's going to be on for one more segment after this also. So, Congressman, we very much thank you for your time this morning. Um, but one thing we wanted to touch on before we move on to uh, other topics is we've been talking about China. You're part of the China Select Committee. We had Congressman Dunn on the program uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he told us something that I actually was not aware of and hadn't heard, that all those little South Pacific islands that uh, MacArthur used as, as essentially the ladder to Japan and that we would quite frankly need in a war between Taiwan and China uh, to be able to effectively operate in that theater. The Chinese, just like you were talking about in South America, they're making both economic and military overtures and essentially weaponizing that ladder against us. Uh, can you tell us any more about that or, or is you know what are they doing? Because it seems very clear that they are gearing up for a, an attack on Taiwan. Everything you said is absolutely spot on. And, and we talked about in the first segment about uh, American leadership receding a fair amount across the broader world. Uh, there are diplomats who say, oh, you know, when, from, from these smaller countries who say, when I talk to the Chinese, I get an airport. When I talk to the Americans, I get a scolding. And uh, I, I, I'll, is, I'll take the airport. Thanks. Yeah. And that's what they're saying. Now they know that the airport's going to be built in a very shoddy manner. 
They know that there's this lone shark mentality that you described. But these are poor countries. And, and there are times when they've got their backs up against the wall where they don't really know what else to do. They also don't get the sense that this is, uh, I mean, I mean, Americans have a tendency to view things in, in uh, pretty stark terms, in, in, in kind of black and white. I think, by the way, that's when we look at the Chinese Communist Party, we are right to look at them as the bad guys. I think it is that simple. I think Xi Jinping is every bit uh, as big a villain and a tyrant as the famous tyrants of the 20th century we all learned about in third grade. And so I do think that it, that we are right to look at it in those terms. The rest of the world, you know, these poor countries, they're not so sure. They're just trying to make sure their people are fed. And so when these overtures that you're talking about are made, they are far more open to them because America is a little missing in action. Um, now I think we have an opportunity here to step up our game because they don't want to cut these deals with the Chinese, but we have to give them an alternative. One more thing. Uh, in recent, there have been some recent years where, the, where China's Belt and Road Initiative invested more money in the developing world than the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund combined. And so it's not just America that's getting uh, outspent by the Chinese. It's really the entire free developed world. We just, uh, we're getting lapped. Do you think the American public, especially those under the age of 40, really understand what communism is? No, and in part because both political parties are free to use those terms whenever they think that it will provide a short-term political benefit. So we really don't, I mean, there's not a deep understanding of different political philosophies. No, I, it is, it's, with some communities, it's very clear. I mean, Carlos Jimenez uh, from Florida is on the Select Committee on China with uh, Neil Dunn and myself. And he, having uh, spent some time early on in his life in Cuba, I think does understand the backbreaking poverty that can be caused uh, by communism, by socialism. So it's not, I mean, it is not unusual among Cuban-Americans uh, or among people who emigrated from Eastern Europe for them to understand those concepts. But native-born Americans, uh, we just don't get it. Um, I want to switch subjects real quick here. Let's talk about ESGs for a minute. So there's a report out today by the Texas Public Policy Foundation that says under Biden, oil and gas investments down 80%. 80%. So we just talked earlier about Saudi Arabia threatening economic sabotage on the American economy because Biden doesn't know what he's doing. And now you have these folks that are afraid to put capital on new oil and gas wells, refineries, pipelines, etc. We have a problem here because we can be, you know, look, there's two things America should always be self-sufficient on, food and energy. There's no reason for it. How do we turn this around? Man, that is really well said. I do think food and energy are, they are the very base of the pyramid. It's hard to build anything uh, upwards if you don't have those as the foundation. And we know that it's almost impossible to cite big projects, uh, whether they be energy or infrastructure in this country. The same project that you can get done in two years in France or Germany takes you five years to get done in this country. I mean, France is not generally considered a paragon of regulatory efficiency. So <laughs> no. when we are getting our butts kicked by France, I think that is a should be a major wake-up call. And this is bipartisan, by the way. We've had Secretary Buttigieg come to our Transportation Committee and talk about how we need to streamline permitting. We have, uh, clearly, Senator Manchin has tried to be a leader on this issue. 
we have really made no meaningful progress until last week, where the debt ceiling deal, the Fiscal Responsibility Act, which I think was pretty unfairly maligned by uh, you know far-right conservatives, for the first time since the 1970s, made major improvements in how we can streamline these things. It gives a shot clock for environmental review uh, on energy projects and other projects. So you can't take five years to complete an, uh, an environmental impact statement. It makes sure that there's a federal government, uh, one agency who's the coordinator, who's trying to drive these decisions um, to fruition. I mean, it does a lot of things that we've been talking about for a long time, but we need even more of it because I think affordable energy is, a, is an American competitive advantage, and we are squandering it. Yeah, that's also very well said. It, it's a huge advantage. We have just about a minute here before we go back to uh, break. We're going to be coming back for our third segment with more from Co- Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Congressman, how do folks follow you and your work to stay in touch with both what you're doing at the Capitol and while you're at home there in South Dakota? Uh, well, at Rep. Dusty Johnson, so R-E-P. Dusty Johnson, kind of on all of the uh, social media platforms, not TikTok, because that's just Chinese malware, but basically everywhere else, that's where we're at, and I uh, would love to have people join the conversation. I, I, I did a thing uh, not too long ago for a group of folks asking about different social medias. I went through the purpose of each one of them. I got to TikTok, and I said, if you have this, throw away your phone. <laughs> yep, yep, true. <laughs> Congressman, thank you so much. We're going to be coming back here with more from Congressman Dusty Johnson on Breaking Battlegrounds in just a few moments. We want to touch a little bit on something else that's going on uh, that the congressman has been working on, particularly relating to food security here in the United States and to our food, our food systems. Uh, that has been a major focus of his, and thank goodness uh, we do have some folks in there focusing on it. Uh, folks, make sure you download and tune into our podcast only segment. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts. We are doing uh, quite a bit on that these days. Those segments keep getting longer and longer. And Chuck and I have a nice argument for you at the end of this one. So, folks, Breaking Battlegrounds back in just a moment. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. On the line with us right now, Congressman Dusty Johnson of South Dakota. Congressman, one of the things that you've been working on really since the pandemic um, has been our food supply security. Uh, it's supply chain crisis overall. You've been working on the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. Tell us what's going on in both of those areas, because I, I think Americans still don't realize how fragile our supply chain has been ever since 2020 and continues to be right now. There are a lot of factors that make that supply chain pretty fragile. I mean, we're 80,000 truck drivers short. We only have five major uh, ocean carriers. And so if one or two of them decide that they're not interested in fairly hauling American products to market, we've got a problem. Uh, we had uh, done somewhat of an underinvestment in infrastructure over the previous 20 years. I think that's beginning to move back in the right direction. Uh, so we do, we, listen, we got some work to do. And uh, just to give you an example, during uh, the kind of the 18 months after the worst of the pandemic, so we've moved past the worst of the health issues, but we were still dealing with some economic fragility. 60% of uh, containers that were going back to Asia we're going back empty. 
This is this at a time when we had American food products literally rotting on the on the port on on, on the docks there, because the foreign flagged ocean carriers just wanted to make a quick turn. They didn't want to haul American goods. They wanted to get back, grab Chinese uh, iPhones, and bring them back quickly. And I totally get it. I mean, in a, in, a, in a true free market system, okay, listen, you get to decide how you want to make your money. If you can make more money doing that, I guess good on you. But these guys are using American ports. And I just think at some point you need some basic reciprocity. Uh, and we passed the Ocean Shipping Reform Act. It was signed into law last year that said there has to be, if you're going to use American ports, you've got to play by some very basic rules of the road, like not ignoring American goods uh, just because you think it's convenient to do so. And then we're also, I passed out a committee two weeks ago, a bill that would allow uh, trucks, if they add a sixth axle, to uh, increase weight so we can have those truck drivers, when they're on the road, do so safely. It doesn't cause more damage to the road. It doesn't cause more accidents. It just allows those hardworking men and women to to work smarter and more efficiently, but we've got about a hundred other things like that we've got to do throughout the system. If we fail to act, we're just going to give China that much more control over the global economic system. Congressman, how much do you think, and you touched on this earlier, uh, talking about China, but also talking about just our investment, whether it be a low-orbit satellite system here in the Southwest, we desperately need uh, some new consideration for desalination and pipelining of water. Uh, the power grid across the country is very vulnerable and needs to be hardened. There are all these major infrastructure needs uh, or, or you know, project needs here and around the world that we should be participating and investing in. How much more would the American public trust our government if we just started getting these things done? There is a sense that the era of big projects in America is kind of in the rearview mirror. And I think that's sad because I think the story of the 20th century in this country was so much about big projects, uh, big dreams coming to fruition. I mean, rural electrification, the universal service where we everybody got a dial tone, the interstate highway system, we connected every one of the states. Uh, the, 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 the dam system that provides, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the, of the electricity for this country. I mean, it was just major home run after major home run where we said, this is America. This is the land of builders. And now it's like you can't, I mean, you can't get anything built uh, without uh, spending, you know, 10 years in, in uh, litigation. Right. Right. It's a, and, and, it, and I just, and it's people, it makes me sad because we need, we need to bring back that American swagger of just competence and construction. That doesn't mean we're going to roll over any landowners' rights, but I think it does mean that, um, these, uh, getting a maybe answer after 10 years is obnoxious. Let's give these companies a yes or no so they can figure out what to go invest in. Well, maybe is the third worst answer. The best answer is yes. Second best no. The worst answer is maybe. And that's what we keep Amen. doing. And what's, finally, what's funny is the progressives want to keep pushing these things that delay these projects, which would help a lot of low-income and middle-income families. And I sort of have to agree with Sam. Sam thinks this is on purpose because they want to break America. Congressman, 30 seconds. Tell us what's going good in America right now. Uh, research and development, technology, I mean, those are really the things that make uh, people's everyday lives better. Government tries to screw that stuff up, but uh, thank goodness we're, we're failing and, and uh, innovation continues. 
Cong- we're with Congressman Dusty Johnson. Congressman, thank you for joining us today. You can find him on all social media, on Twitter, at Rep Dusty Johnson. Same thing on Instagram, same thing on Facebook. Congressman, thanks a million. And never on TikTok. Never on TikTok. It's communist. <laughs> thank you, Congressman. We appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. At Overstock, we know home is a pretty important place, and that's why we believe everyone deserves a home that makes them happy. Whether you're furnishing a new house or apartment, or simply looking to update and refresh a few rooms, Overstock has everyday free shipping and amazing deals on the beautiful, high-quality furniture and decor you need to transform any home into the home of your dreams. Overstock, making dream homes come true. Welcome back to Breaking Battlegrounds with your host, Chuck Warren. I'm Sam Stone. Folks, are you concerned with stock market volatility, especially with Joe Biden in office? What if you can invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the stock market, a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises? You can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you choose. There's no loss of principle if you need your money back at any time. Your interest is compounded daily, you're paid monthly, and there are no fees. So go to investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com, or call them at 888-YREFI-24 and get yourself in line to earn up to a 10.25% fixed rate of return. That's right, folks, 10.25% fixed. It's the best deal out there in investing today. So give them a call, investyrefi.com or 888-YREFI-24, and tell them Chuck and Sam sent you. All right, Chuck, next up, a guest I'm very excited to talk to. Um doing some very good work in the area of military affairs, particularly uh, he is a specialist in defense and international affairs, a focus on maritime and air force developments. Welcome to the program, Dr. James Bospatinis. He And thank you for joining us this morning. You have some fantastic pieces out on hypersonic weaponry that's being developed. Can you tell us first, what is a hypersonic weapon? Thank you very much, and uh, it's my pleasure to be speaking to you today. A hypersonic weapon is basically a missile that travels at speeds of Mac- in excess of Mach five, or faster than the uh, five times faster than the speed of sound. The difference between a hypersonic missile, as attention is being drawn to now, and a traditional ballistic missile, which travel at speeds above Mach 5 and have been in service uh, for decades now, is that the new generation of hypersonic weapons that are being developed, hypersonic glide vehicles and hypersonic cruise missiles, can manoeuvre within the atmosphere, which complicates detection, tracking and defence. That, that's one of the first questions. Thank you. Uh, that was one of the first questions I was going to ask, because obviously a traditional ICBM is actually coming in faster than than these things go. Um, and we have developed some systems to try to at least target the, those and shoot, be able to shoot them down. But your concern, you say, with these is there's almost no way to 
for our current defense systems, our ship point defense systems, our national defense systems to deal with this threat as it evolves at this time? Defense against the latest hypersonic threats at present is very limited. Uh, The United States has said it has a nascent capability against, uh, for example, hypersonic glide vehicles with the SM-6 deployed on US Navy warships. And it's working to develop a glide phase interceptor, which will enter service later this decade. And that will be capable of intercepting the latest hypersonic threats that are being developed. As we have seen most recently in Ukraine, the Patriot air defense, air and missile defense system does offer a capability against the Russian Kinjal. The Kinjal is described as a hypersonic weapon system and Strictly speaking, it is. It travels faster than Mach 5, but it's a sort of entry-level hypersonic system. It's an it's effectively an air-launched ballistic missile. It's an air-launched version of the Russian Iskander ground-launched tactical ballistic missile. So it, it, it falls within the intercept capability of existing systems such as Patriot. The higher end systems glide vehicles such as the chinese df-17 or a hypersonic cruise missile they are much more taxing why should americans our our brothers and sisters the united kingdom freedom-loving countries be concerned about russia and china having hypersonic missiles explain to them what, what is the danger of them in practical terms hypersonic weapons by virtue of their speed, their flight paths, their unpredictable trajectories and maneuverability make detecting, tracking and engaging them very difficult. So they are particularly well suited to striking very high value targets. It's why the United States, for example, is working to develop its own hypersonic weapons capability. If you want to hit something that is extremely high value, such as an aircraft carrier or a deeply buried hardened command facility, a hypersonic weapon provides that effective means of penetrating an adversary's air and missile defenses and striking it. They're, they're not a panacea. They're not going to be silver bullets. You know, they, they form part of a wider strike complex. But because of those particular characteristics, they pose particular challenges. And that is why they are eliciting so much concern in terms of potential adversaries deploying them. The United States obviously omits and shows its power around the world through our aircraft carriers. Um, they're amazing vessels, they show amazing presence. Why would a hypersonic missile mean to our aircraft carrier presence throughout the world? Let's say Russia or Iran have one. What does that mean? It provides uh, a potent means of targeting the carrier. But a carrier is inherently an extremely difficult target to prosecute. It's mobile. A, a U.S. carrier will be moving hundreds of miles a day. The maritime environment is inherently dynamic, and to find, fix, 
track and target a carrier is difficult. You need a very robust supporting kill chain or intelligence surveillance reconnaissance systems that can locate the carrier, keep track of it, and help queue long-range strike systems onto it. Those systems can be targeted kinetically, so reconnaissance aircraft can be shot down. They can be targeted for electronic warfare and cyber means, so but the system can be disrupted in a in a variety of means. But assuming that it's still functioning, the adversary can launch a hypersonic missile, which because it travels so much quicker than a long range than other subsonic long range strike systems, the time a subsonic cruise missile would take to travel, say, six hundred miles in an hour, a hypersonic missile can do in say ten minutes. So because it's compressing the time that it takes to travel to the target, it means that the carrier and its strike group have a much shorter window in which to detect, track and engage the incoming threat. So that is why hypersonic weapons are seen as posing such a challenge to time critical targets such such as an aircraft carrier. You need people who think on their feet. Yeah, one of, one of your recent articles on that same point it's not just compressing the time that a carrier or carrier group has to deal with an incoming threat, but the potential for these missiles to be used in both conventional and nuclear configurations means that for political decision makers, these may compress the time in ways that really, really restrict their ability to react to a situation intelligently, right? Yes, there's always the problem with dual capable systems that is weapon systems which are both nuclear and conventional that when one is traveling towards you you don't know whether it is a nuclear weapon on its way or a conventional weapon and that poses all sorts of challenges in terms of escalation control uh for example the chinese df-26 intermediate range ballistic missile is both conventional and nuclear and if one is launched in the event of hostilities at guam uh, there is no way of telling until it detonates what warhead it it is carrying so with any dual capable long-range strike system that it discern that discerning whether it is nuclear or, or conventional is a particular problem and uh certainly hypersonic missiles would be would be no different and uh, the russian kinjal system which is being employed against ukraine is a dual capable system and uh it's likely that other hypersonic weapon systems will also be dual capable we're with dr james Bospatinis. he is a U united kingdom based specialist in defense and international affairs he is co-ceo of jb associates a geopolitical risk advisory what have we learned about Russia's military capabilities in Ukraine? We have learnt that pre-war assessments governing how Russian military modernization efforts have proceeded over the past uh, decade or so were over-optimistic, shall we say. The, Rus the deep, deep structural flaws in the Russian military, which are, are reflective of the wider Russian state, have not been addressed. The Russian, the Russian military has 
made fundamental errors. Uh, for example, in the employment of their ballistic and cruise missile forces, they spent 20 plus years developing a doctrine of how to employ these. And when war broke out, they didn't actually use them as they had written about how they would use them, which was extremely fortunate for Ukraine. The Russians haven't conducted large-scale combined arms training. Their air force does not train to anywhere near the level of Western air forces. They haven't developed the joint command structures or various issues. Their, their logistics system is, as we have seen. When I was about 11 years old, I had a chance to visit still the Soviet Union. And we were there with a, a group of writers who were – it was the start of Glasnost. They were talking about some of the environmental damage. We came back. Everyone was plowed drunk one night from a Georgian restaurant in Moscow. One of the big writers in front of us was trying to open his door to his hotel room. He fell into the door. The door frame and all fell into the room. We splintered apart. He rolls over laughing. He looks back at us and says, and you were afraid of our missiles. I, I think that in certain sense still describes the nature of Soviet manufacturing and weapons propaganda. Yes. A lot of Russian weapon systems uh, are not anywhere near to the same standard of, of equivalent Western missile systems or other we we weapon systems. On the other hand, their, their long-range strike systems, their Iskanders, their cruise missiles, for example, uh, they have worked. Uh, it's a question more of the human element in how in how the weapons are employed rather than the actual effect themselves when a when an iskander hits a target it is detonating and it is causing damage and their cruise missiles have proved devastating but the russians instead of launching these weapons at critical national infrastructure targets uh, at the start of the war, air defense systems, command and control facilities, they used them against civilian targets and uh, firing, a, for the most part, firing a ballistic missile or a cruise missile against a civilian apartment block is, apart from being an, an absolute war crime, it's also a complete uh, waste of, of a weapon system. So they didn't actually employ their systems right. Had they employed them differently, we could have seen a very different progression of the conflict. Do you think that's partially because they were trying to simply get the Ukrainian people to force a capitulation at that point? Or, or because that seems like the only reason, reason you do that instead of targeting military assets. Yes, indeed. Uh, the operational planning was guided by completely false assumptions. Uh, the Russian government, Russian government fought for to Ukrainian resistance would collapse after about three days and uh, the Ukrainian people would uh, simply greet the Russians with open, with open arms. And so perhaps they thought that uh, there's no need to conduct uh, strikes against uh, infrastructure targets. Yeah, Dr. Dr. James Bosbatinis uh, is a UK-based specialist in defense and international affairs, particular focus on maritime and air force developments. Doctor, how do folks follow you and your work? I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. I write on a freelance basis for a variety of publications. We appreciate you having having you on the program here today. I want to bring you back on again in the future. Thank you so much. We're, we're running out of time here in the program, Doctor, but I, I very much appreciate your time this morning. 
Well, welcome to the podcast, only segment of Breaking Battlegrounds. I want to say thank you to both of our guests today, Congressman Dusty Johnson and Dr. James Bosbatinis. Uh, good discussions there from both of them, Chuck. But there's obviously some really big news kind of stirring the country right now. Broke last night. With the indictment of Donald Trump uh, on a number of charges, which are frankly hard to deny uh, that that he did do those things. Um and it's hard not, hard to say he didn't commit a crime. On the other hand, the prosecution – I have a real issue with the prosecution of Donald Trump when you're not prosecuting Hillary Clinton. When you're not prosecuting it's a, it's, everyone it's, else who's it's, taken it's, documents it's, in it's this a, way. It's again a double standard and that's the problem with it. You know What I understand – and this could be wrong – is he was contacted by our archives um, – and he delivered in t- January 2022 um, 15 boxes of documents that they said should not have been taken from the White House. So he gave those back. And then through tips or something, I don't know, it's a little unclear, he supposedly had more documents. And that's hence we end up getting a raid in August. Um, so the question is, you know, what they're saying is different versus other people is that when he was approached about it or confronted, however you want to term it, he sort of dug his heel on some documents. Now, again, you and I have discussed this. I have always believed that there was such chaos in that White House in the last days that who knows what's packing those boxes, right? I, 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 well, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I mean who know. knows? I mean, stuff gets thrown in boxes all the time. I mean, they're talking about finding pictures within there and news make and, and uh, magazines. So it tells me this wasn't a really well-conceived <laughs> conspiracy to take documents. So the question I is— I think they were just throwing everything in the offices I, and boxes I agree. and moving I out agree. the door. And I, I think, mean, and it, I think they're know. going fast because they were disputing 2020. So I think that was their focus, plus— running the country and then i think oh my goodness it's sunday and we gotta leave tuesday or whatever and but i, I also what don't think that's terribly different than what ends up getting taken out of there by every previous president yeah and i and that's what i just don't know i, I really wish they would tell us what these documents supposedly are that are endangering national security I, I mean, my problem with that is claiming it's endangering national security at all, because at the end of the day, Donald Trump is not some foreign asset or weapon. That whole narrative has been garbage. I, if anything, he kept these things for ego. It, you know, I mean, it's as many presidents do have a giant ego and they want to be able to, you know, show people after their career this letter they got from the president of you know, France or whatever. Well, there's there's going to be so much more to come. Again, it does show um, why Hillary Clinton's not biased, why DOJ is protecting Hunter Biden. These are concerning matters, and if you're going to apply the rule of law, I want it to be applied even, Stephen. I don't want you to be picking who you decide should be prosecuted and who should not. And right now, I think this is the problem for DOJ. Now, I, I think it's really funny. <laughs> Look, if you prosecuted I Clinton, I would have no problem with them prosecuting I, I think Trump. A real, I think a real funny thing is here is the Biden administration saying we didn't know anything about it until we saw the indictment <laughs> come through. Oh, come I mean, on. It just, just, I, I mean, just, it's just better to say, I, I don't know, it's just such a lie. And the thing is, it puts, when they do that. Well, they can't be honest because they're using the DOJ well, exactly. to target that, their political adversaries. That's the whole point. So if you are a Trump supporter, are you inclined to believe the government's doing rotten things? Making a statement like that, people like come on of course you'd know about this right and so it will be interesting I, you know we still have um 
the investigation of January 6th. We still have the Georgia investigation, which I'd be surprised if indictments don't come out of that. Oh, I, I they're, mean, it's just—it's a becoming—is it becoming just such white noise now that people are ignoring it? That's well, it, my question. It's white noise right up until the point where they actually convict him and lock him up. I mean, which they're really threatening like lengthy prison sentences with some of this. Yeah. I mean, so I we'll see how this plays out, but I got to say, I mean, yeah, I agree he broke the law and there should not there should be consequences when you break the law, but on the other hand, if the consequences apply only to one side, then you don't have a law. You just Well, have that's politics. well, that's that's not rule of law. Yeah. And that's the problem with it. So, you know, it, it's got to be clearly you know, implemented for everybody. Or not at all. And that's what apparently that's not where we're even at. We're just like we're going to depending who the political party opponent is, we're prosecuting. This is this is a really politicized federal law enforcement and DOJ right now. And it's really damaging. to It really needs to be cleaned up. It's it would be I I would truly be interested in Congress passing something about some sort of lack of a better term term limits in the DOJ. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, something has to be done. It's too entrenched with bureaucratic attorneys. Well, you know what I was thinking about the other night, and I, I didn't realize it at the time, but I remember some of these articles from the time period. Clinton, towards the end of his term, and then Obama went big with this, they didn't place people leaving their administration in your typical political appointee positions. They got them jobs inside the bureaucracy and all these agencies. And now we're seeing the the fruit of having seeded all the federal agencies with political Democrat political activists rather than people who are there to actually do the job. They are infiltrated in every bureaucracy from the mid-levels up. Right. And that's a hard thing to disentrench. Exactly. Exactly. Talking about trenches, um, switching topics here, Chuck, but there was a big announcement recently by the governor of Arizona about our water situation here where they project a 4% deficit in water over the next 100 years. How much was it? 4% over 100 years. So we're not talking end of the world stuff, but the way they did the press conference, it certainly made it sound that way. And they made a big announcement about we're going to stop new construction in Arizona. Now, what they meant was new construction outside of areas served by water grids, right? If you're on the Phoenix water, Tucson water, Flagstaff water, whatever, that wasn't what they were talking about. But the way they presented, I really believe the environmentalist movement is pushing for planet-wide population reduction. They don't want any new growth. They don't want any of this stuff. And this governor fell in this trap. And all week long, I've been dealing with businesses you know, from across the country going, hey, we were considering Arizona. We don't think that's viable now if, if what your governor just said. They botched this thing from top to bottom. Katie Hobbs is utterly incompetent when it comes to handling the routine business of government. Because you could have put this out in a press release with nothing else, instituted the exact same policy. We're not going to allow growth in these wildcat areas where you don't have water. That is that is smart policy. Right. But the implementation of it and how she went about it so ham-handed that it's literally hurt the state of Arizona. And that ties to what we're talking with Congressman Johnson Look, the solution to all of this, the entire U.S. Southwest needs water enhancements. We need new water, whether from the Snake River to the north, the Mississippi, Missouri's to the east, or from the Gulf of Mexico 
uh, you know, and the technology is there to do it. Yeah, it is. But the problem is, you're going to have a bunch of environmentalists sue, which are going to delay it ten to twenty years. And this is really, literally issues you can resolve in two years. Well, it absolutely is, and that's the other point we brought. I brought this up with one of the other congressmen we've had on the program, but I, I don't understand why we don't just declare if something is environmentally beneficial and, and taking the Southwest off of groundwater and off of river water would be massively environmentally beneficial augmenting our river water, taking us off of groundwater would help the environment here tremendously, period, no question. In that case, why, why, are these, why are they allowed to sue on NEPA or any of this other stuff? The project should go forward. You just do the engineering reviews and you're, you're done. Well, it should be like something eminent domain. Yeah, that's I what mean, I mean. Just saying, like, come on in. And just you, this right. needs to be done, and it's you know, just ridiculous. Like in this case, look, all your lawsuits. Nope, nope. You're, you know, we don't even entertain those things in this type of situation because it is an issue of national security and safety for our citizens here in the Southwest and to have an assured water supply. And it helps the environment. And it helps the environment. I mean, yeah. where, 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 you say you support helping the environment, but you're right. fighting something that could absolutely help the environment. Right. That That is the ridiculousness of the modern environmental movement, which to me is frankly just a eugenicist movement in hiding. Um, let's finish one last topic here. Um, the Tampa Bay Rays are a third through the season, and they are almost 30 games above 500. Chuck, I'm a Red Sox fan, and this is the podcast segment, so I can say what I'm really <laughs> feeling right now, which is fuck you, man. Seriously. No, they're amazing. They are an amazing organization. Um, what they do with no money. I mean, and, no money. And you sort of get the sense the Diamondbacks have taken a page from them, what they're building up on their farm system. I've, I've said for years, if you if you watched and do what Tampa does, but just add a little money to the mix where you can keep some of your best players from time to time and you don't watch them go to the Padres, mm-hmm. that's that's the that's the formula. I agree. I agree. Speaking well, in which the Diamondbacks can go lock up Corbin Carroll right now. They have, haven't they? Did they? Yeah, 10 Did years. I miss that? Was that the 10-year deal? I know Corbin Carroll. Yeah, Corbin Carroll's we're, tenure. We're, we're looking at the girl in the studio who's getting married to a professional ball player, and she doesn't. <laughs> she know. knows nothing. She knows nothing. Uh, Corbin. She Carroll, hasn't even given us an update I, on I, the I, Idaho I, murders. I, I believe. I believe Corbin Carroll signed a ten-year deal. That's what everybody's been going on about early. They just tied him in. So okay. Well, thank goodness for that. Yeah. By the way, anything before we close off on the Idaho murders that we should be aware of? No, not too much. I think they had like a few twenty days ago or something like that. They had. 60 days to determine if he was going to get the death penalty or not. And then Brian Koberger has now come out and said that he doesn't want cameras in the courtroom. So now that's the whole hot discussion is like, well, then let's have him because why does he not want, why do we care what he says? Chuck, you okay with the death penalty in this case? I'm always okay with the death penalty. <laughs> <laughs> it's a rare exception that I'm not okay with the death penalty. And that's the final word today from Chuck Fryamoran. <laughs> Maybe with those 9% shoplifters you wrote about. Oh, yeah, no, we can start with them for sure, right? <laughs> Retail theft, off with his head. Sam, as closing here, how much does it cost the average American annually for shoplifting? Yeah, so go go on our Substack, folks, because we ran the numbers on this, Capital One putting out a survey, and then I broke the numbers down. $318 per person. That's probably the, undercounted. And that's undercounted. If yeah. you read the article, you realize that's the direct cost from the losses that they're taking from shoplifting. Uh, then you add in all the additional security, the other measures that they're putting in place. Those things all cost money, too. There's probably a lot 
lot, as we saw with Lululemon, that's not reported because of politics, essentially, where they fired two employees for even just reporting a theft to the police. I, you know, I doubt they're reporting their numbers accurately, and probably there's a bunch like them. Um, this might be a five, six hundred dollar per person a year tax is what we're facing. Well, and folks, if you're purchasing from Lululemon, realize there is a shoplifting tax assessed on your right. clothing, whether whether they list it or itemize it or not, you're paying for it. Before they go to Lululemon, though, Chuck, and, and this is a free plug, isn't your former assistant Katrina, doesn't she have a, a, a clothing line or company? That well, she works at a clothing line in Salt Lake. Um, knowing the ownership, they will not tolerate shoplifting, so... Okay, what, what what's the name? Does it do we do you know? Do I know? Oh, I, we'll tell. We'll put it on our we'll put social it on media. our Substack. Yeah. Hey, look, good opportunity to pay for, pay for a product from someone who exactly. actually feels the way you do. Exactly. Well, folks, we hope you have a great weekend. We hope you enjoyed our guests today, both um, wonderful people to have on the show, and we we'll hope you'll share it. You can download our podcast. Go to breakingbattlegrounds.vote, Share it. Rate it. We'd appreciate it. Help our audience grow. Have a great weekend. The 2022 political field was intense, so don't get left behind in 2024. If you're running for political office, the first thing on your to-do list needs to be securing your name on the web with a yourname.vote web domain from GoDaddy.com. Get yours now.